I'm Joshua Kagi from The Christian Citizen, and this is episode 46 of Justice, Mercy, Faith. In this episode, the Rev. John Zering, author, former pastor, and regular contributor to The Christian Citizen, joins Curtis Ramsey Lucas for a conversation on recognizing and practicing the things that make for peace. Here now is Curtis Ramsey Lucas with Rev. John Zering. Reverend John Zaring has served United Church of Christ congregations for 22 years as a pastor in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Maine. He's the author of more than 30 books. His most recent book from Judson Press is Get Your Church Ready to Grow, a guide to building attendance and participation. And he has a chapter in In This Together, Ministry in Times of Crisis, also available from Judson Press. He is also a regular contributor to The Christian Citizen. John, it's good to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Curtis. I've enjoyed uh, writing for The Christian Citizen for the last uh, four years, and now it's wonderful to be able to, to see your face and talk with you. It's good to talk with you as well. So the first question uh, I wanted to ask is simply how you're doing in this uh, pandemic reality that we're living through. Um, are you well? How's your how's your family doing? Well, thank you. Uh, I, uh, there's been a lot of silver linings for us uh, during this pandemic, and uh, we almost don't have enough time to do everything that we'd like to do. <laughs> uh, I, I've been, uh, I've had, for the first time in my life, I've taken up cooking. Uh, bought, bought myself an air fryer, and uh, I've looked up air fryer recipes, and we've been eating fantastic uh, meals every night. <laughs> uh, and uh, we, we're fortunate to live in a, in a beautiful state uh, where there's, we're in the center of Massachusetts, where there's a lot of country roads. So we do a lot of uh, driving around and taking picnics. Uh, even in the winter, we've gone out for picnics and uh, exploring our state. Uh, and I've taken up, uh, I've taken up the Native American flute. I, uh, a friend uh, who's Native American make me a flute. He's a musician and a flute maker, and uh, so that's been fun to learn a new instrument. And of course, uh, writing uh, for you and also some books. So, so we're we're doing well. That's good. Good to hear. So some new uh, new practices that you've undertaken in the time you've had. So in the book, in this together, um, your uh, chapter is titled "Living Between Trapezes, Waiting in Uncertain Times." What are uh, some things that you've learned through your life and in, in ministry about waiting? Uh, well, I've I've learned, uh, like many people, I'm not very good at it. <laughs> uh, but you know, when when I when I when I turn to the Bible, and particularly the Psalms, I, I see the word uh, wait frequently, uh, and uh, wait is a synonym, a good synonym for the word trust. Uh, I, I I grew up uh, in my in my uh, Baptist church, uh, learning learning uh, uh, to, to trust God, and uh, particularly in difficult times. Uh, so um, it, the, the pandemic has reminded me more than ever uh, to continue that practice. You also, uh, you have a, a place on the coast of Maine and you write in the chapter about uh, the eagles that you have observed there over the years. Um, what have you learned from watching eagles? 
<laughs> well, I, I, I love the verse from Isaiah. Uh, those who wait wait for the Lord, those who trust in the Lord, shall mount up their way with wings like eagles. Mm. That's exactly what the eagle does. Uh, we have some Adirondack chairs down by the uh, the bay, and we'll be sitting there next to the eagle tree, and the eagle will just come in and land while we're sitting there talking. We don't seem to bother the eagle at all. And uh, he'll just sit there and, and, and primp and prune and, and scout the bay. And as we watch him, uh, we, we, we can see it coming. <laughs> he, he starts to move about and twitch a little bit and, uh, and, then, and then sort of uh, sits upright. And then all of a sudden, with this majestic harumph, flies out of the tree, this majestic uh, wingspan that he has. And he goes straight out and then goes up and soars. And I keep uh, wondering if Isaiah might have had an eagle tree like that when he wrote that. Those who wait for the Lord shall mount up with wings like eagles. Because that's what they do. They mount up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Pretty spectacular. Um, this Easter is also the anniversary of the death of Martin Luther King Jr. And it's also the anniversary of a speech that King gave at Riverside Church on April 4th, 1967, exactly one year prior to his death. You write about that speech in your latest Christian Citizen article. What was the significance of King's speech at Riverside in 1967? Uh, why, why is it remembered? Well, the, 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 the 60s uh, were the times of the Vietnam War, and uh, King came out uh, and courageously uh, said, I, I stand against the Vietnam War. Uh, he, he was opposed to it. At that uh, same time, uh, I, I was uh, heading towards a seminary. I went to a Princeton seminary, and when I was there, I worked as a, uh, as, a as a draft counselor with the Fellowship of Reconciliation, uh, working with people who were uh, uh, either drafted or about to be drafted and, and uh, considering their options and the implications of their faith, uh, particularly, uh, because you, you, if you became a conscientious objector, you had to be, uh, it had to be based on uh, your religious faith, but based on philosophical principles but on religious principles and uh, and also uh, you had to be opposed to war in um, in any form you couldn't just be a selective objective uh, the draft board said finally upon that so they would not grant you CEO status if you were selected um, and and so uh, I, I had to really grapple with what what I learned uh, growing up uh, in my church and what I was taught uh, my church was uh, only uh, oh, probably less than 10 miles from Crozier Theological Seminary, where Martin Luther King uh, went to seminary and, and got his divinity degree. And, uh, and, and the pastors that I had growing up uh, uh, were classmates of his. <laughs> uh, and, and, and in fact, told me some, uh, some fascinating stories about the, their interaction with him at Crozier Seminary. Uh, and so I, I was I was raised uh, on basic princi- Christian principles uh, from Thou shalt not kill, uh, the, the first commandment to love God, and love agape, uh, to uh, love your uh, neighbor. Uh, when asked who 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 is my neighbor, he said, "Well, the neighbor is the good Samaritan, uh, the one who cares for the ones in need." Uh, I grew up with uh, hearing the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where Jesus talk, talked about the loving your enemies. That's uh, that's probably the most Christian verse in the entire Bible, because uh, you don't find that in any other world religion. And when I when I applied uh, that to um, whether or not I would uh, go into the military, uh, I I had to conclude that uh, based on my religious principles, um, I, I I couldn't. Uh, I I would need to find another way. 
and and so when Martin Luther King came out and and uh, when he stood against the Vietnam War, he he was years ahead of most. I remember a few years later being being parts of protests, but by that time everybody was part part of the protests. I mean, mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers marching down the streets. Um, and so the, yeah, the whole. Uh, sorry, go ahead. I just said the whole culture at that point was embracing the opposition to the Vietnam War, but but King was way ahead of his time, and went, and, and sort of led us. That's what a leader does: led us uh, in that direction. Right. There was there was some opposition to the war in Vietnam, but certainly not broadly unpopular as it as it later became. Um, so he was criticized for his stance, um, not only by those who had long opposed him, but also from others within the civil rights movement. Uh, wh why did King face that kind of opposition from within the movement he was leading? Well, of course, he he he, he did this out of, out of his church background. I mean, he, it wasn't just as a civil rights leader, but also as a pastor. Right. And uh, as, as as you may know, in in any congregation, there are there are people on on both sides of every issue. <laughs> Uh, and it always astounds me and and, and bothers me um, on the patriotic holidays when, for example, there's the presentation of the flags. We're right down the center aisle of the church. People march with the flags uh, and in, in their military uniforms. And, and we lift we lift up the military and we lift up uh, patriotism to our country. But where has ever the church lifted up people that, that stood against the, that, that culture? It's, it's Christ against culture and, and, and said, that, you know, based on the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, uh, we, we really have to question um, our, 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 our military uh, stance. So why, why, you, to answer your question, you know, why were the people in the civil rights movement that opposed them? Why are the people in, in, in my church today, which is a liberal church, uh, who, who would oppose me if I came out against the Vietnam War? Right, right. Well, and I think, too, that King was making uh, – connections, I think, that others weren't at the time, right? He saw um, that the war in Vietnam was drawing disproportionately um, uh, poor uh, men to fight and, yeah. um, you know, African-Americans fighting and dying alongside white Americans for liberties they didn't enjoy at home. Um, yeah. and, I, and I think as I've read it, uh, the speech again. I went back and took a look at it. Uh, he he notes that opposition in the speech um, to those you know uh, who were fearful. I think that he was going to jeopardize something by coming out against the war in Vietnam, jeopardize the progress that had been made in the in the civil rights movement. Um, you 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 write in the article about about that upbringing, about that church experience um, near near Crozier and and. Um, learning from those who had been uh, colleagues and, and classmates of King. Um, talk a little bit more about that. Uh, how, how did that experience shape your own, your own ministry? It, it shaped it profoundly. Uh, and w when I think back to my experience in, in the, the church where I grew up, uh, uh, I, I started out as a, in, in high school uh, being a Sunday school teacher. Uh, and uh, at, at that point, uh, I felt uh, how important it was that I was able to serve God uh, in that way. Uh, any time I had the opportunity, whether it was as an usher or as a Sunday school teacher to serve God, uh, uh, I felt very good about that. But one of the things that led me into, uh, into ministry, uh, although I took a 20-some-year detour to get there. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, and uh, <clears throat> what what fascinates me and confounds me at the same time is uh, I'm, my mother took my brother and I to, to a church. Uh, we heard the same messages. They were prophetic messages many times. And yet uh, my brother and I have, have one north and one, one south and one's conservative and one's liberal and one's for and one's against and one's Republican and one's a Democrat. And <laughs> so we, I mean, we were both subject to the same messages. And sometimes we, we, we wonder, uh, with, we talk every, every week, we wonder, you know, how we could grow up with the same upbringing and still have uh, completely different values. <laughs> right. Profoundly different views. Um, you write that the um, the way of peace is not an easy way. Um, it's it's often a, a countercultural way. And uh, when I went back and looked at, uh, at King's address at Riverside, he said something similar. Um, he talks about, uh, and this is a quote, some of us who have already begun to break the silence of the night have found that the calling to speak is often a vocation of agony, but we must speak. Have you found that to be a case at times that speaking up for peace uh, is a vocation of agony? Absolutely. When, when I, uh, as a pastor, I, I would often uh, remind myself that I have to be the pastor to people on both sides of every issue. Uh, and, and so there were people with, with in my congregation uh, with whom uh, privately I knew uh, I, I disagreed with uh, I, uh, on on social and political issues. On, on uh, there were there were people in, in my congregation that were. Um, uh, they would sing songs of peace at Christmas, <laughs> but, uh, but but we're very militaristic. Uh, I mean, their their answer was always, you know, go, let's go shoot them, let's go bomb them. <laughs> and and, and uh, so when I when I would uh, uh, preach prophetic messages, um, there would be agony. <laughs> there would there, it would be very difficult. Uh, I, I remember um, uh, um, William Sloan Coffin talking about. Um, the people uh, in, in, when he served at Riverside Church, pastor, uh, he would preach a prophetic message about peace, and then uh, the next day have to go visit in the hospital somebody that he knew disagreed entirely with everything he said, but he was still his pastor, and they still had a relationship as pastor and parishioner. Hmm. Um, but sometimes you you lose parishioners, uh, and I, I have I've seen that with uh, speaking out <clears throat> against racism, with speaking out for peace, uh, with speaking out uh, for. Um, uh, on, on behalf of people who are LGBTQ, um, the, the churches that, are, that have become uh, open and affirming lose lots of members uh, yeah. when they take a party. And uh, we, 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 it, it hurts to pay that price. <clears throat> we know we have to, but uh, it hurts to pay that price. As we uh, come through this uh, pandemic and begin to see uh, a light at the end of the tunnel, if you will, with... Uh, infection rates coming down and vaccines becoming more available. Do you have hope that we will come out of this with a renewed appreciation for the things that make for peace? That's a very good question, Curtis. Um, I, you know, when, when, you, when you look at the issues facing us right now, I mean, cert, certainly before uh, the, the last election, <laughs> that, that would have been much more the case uh, uh, because we had, I mean, we, we were about to cause wars all over the place. And I think now uh, we're at least looking to uh, uh, find ways um, to, to live together in peace with the nations that uh, are traditionally our enemies. Uh, although, uh, uh, it's difficult. I mean, 
called it the Biden called the Putin killer. Well, <laughs> it is. <laughs> uh, so, and he's taking a lot of heat for you know, for naming, uh, but he is. Um, your, your your book in this together has has, uh, has caused all of us who are, who are reading it uh, to ponder some very profound questions about peace, about racism, uh, and about the, what the post-pandemic church is going to look like. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's going to have a very tight uh, line to walk between its prophetic uh, ministry and vision, and, and as well as its uh, sort of sustaining itself at a time when. Um, all membership-based organizations are in decline. I mean, we, we talk about the decline of the church, and, and it has been declining uh, in membership and attendance, um, but all uh, membership-based organizations have been declining. Uh, and and, and if, uh, if you do a little research, or just Google uh, membership-based organizations and find that they're all struggling with decline. I mean, everything from associations and country clubs and museums and um, anything where people volunteer members, boards of directors, uh, and so churches are a part of that, that that tide, which is which is ebbing and flowing. And right now, it seems to be flowing out. Yeah, there's a real um, paradox almost in the in the pandemic. I mean, uh, on the one hand, churches have made this uh, remarkable shift to. Um, online platforms for worship and pastoral care and education and some have actually seen i think growth in that as far as participation uh in yeah. in that um and yet uh, and then we're going to get back to this kind of hybrid uh, you know in person but still online and i i wonder how do we integrate those things how do we how do we maintain that kind of reach uh when we're now able to do that in ways that we really weren't before. I, I spent half of my career uh, in higher education working as a you know, vice president of institutional advancement before becoming a pastor. And so uh, a lot of my work as a pastor was informed by that, that previous experience. And uh, <clears throat> I, I've, uh, when, I, when I became a pastor, I thought that uh, institutional advancement was part of my job as a pastor. And so uh, I, I worked at it, at the uh, building attendance and participation, at the building resources, uh, building boards, building uh, building up the church uh, in, in, from an institutional point of view. Um, and, and that's something that uh, uh, often pastors are not particularly skilled at doing. Uh, there, there are very few uh, courses in seminary uh, that, that, that help them to do that. Some, some seminaries have had courses uh, in uh, pastoral leadership and church administration, but um, that's sort of like the, uh, the, the the high school programs in music and art. When something has to be cut, uh, that's often what goes. Mm. Um, but uh, that you know, in, in some in some ways, we have we have to pay attention to lots of new challenges, uh, uh, and, and racism is in the forefront of people's minds today. Um, and and on the other hand, uh, we have to. Uh, pay attention at sort of what's underlying the iceberg, which is the sustaining the church uh, and, and, the, and, and keeping it afloat. Um, I, I, yeah, you, you know, um, racism and attention to that in, in our society, and um, certainly that is one of the things that uh, King was addressing in that speech at Riverside, he talks about the triple evils of poverty and racism and, and militarism. Um, and, and I think, too, that 
you know, King saw this interconnectedness of life um, that we are brother and sister's keeper. Um, and I wonder, uh, do you see evidence of, of that as well through this pandemic, some some kind of reminder of that, uh, given what we've lived through, that we are uh, um, both our brother and sister's keeper, but also that we need to address these these kind of systemic uh, issues of poverty and racism and militarism. Well, I think um, most people of faith, particularly um, progressive people of faith, uh, see, see themselves as their brothers and sisters keeper. Um, there are there are others uh, who, who don't, uh, mm. who are also uh, go under the label of Christian or evangelical fundamentalist Christian. Uh, one of the one of the questions I've been pondering, and in part inspired by your book in these times, uh, is is how do we how do we change the attitude values uh, of people? Uh, I mean, how, how do we encourage um, them to have the right uh, attitudes of value that I am my brother's keeper, uh, that all people are equal, uh, that in in, in some ways uh, we, we need to pay much more attention to uh, to righting the wrong past. Um, and uh, w- when I think about how you change attitudes and values, one of the one of the continuing questions I have is, well, whose attitudes and values would I like to change? <laughs> and uh, I, I would like to change the attitudes and values of people who, who uh, don't think evaluatively <laughs> or critically. Uh, I would like to change the attitudes and values of people who uh, are the kinds of people that uh, invaded the Capitol. Um, uh, and and there's a lot of them. I mean, that's what's scary about it. When I when I look at the, the percentage of, of people sort of in that camp, you could be looking at a third to forty percent of the population. Um, how does the church? How do I, as a Christian, uh, affect their attitudes and values? Uh, and so the, the first part of that is identifying uh, who's, the, who's the target population to try to, uh, to influence. And then, uh, and then also, how, how do you do that? Um, how, do you, how do you change people's attitudes who are not receptive to it and who, who may be getting information from uh, their church or from other value sources that are opposite of my values? I, I think the... <laughs> I think it may be too late for many adults, uh, and so I'd, I'd be aiming at the children. This is a, this is going to be a long, long-term project, uh, and I, you know, I think we be, need to be aiming at uh, influencing the values and attitudes of children, which the church has always done very, very well. Uh, at least the churches I've been a part of, uh, and of course, there's few, there are fewer children uh, coming now. Uh, I mean, Sunday schools have been in decline for a long, long time. But where, where we can, we can make a difference. Uh, and when I look back at the, the years I spent as a pastor, I think maybe the most valuable things that I did uh, were, were to influence the, the, the values and the, of the children. Uh, and, and in some ways, uh, as I watch them grow up, I, I see that unfolding. Uh, yeah, I think the, the, the challenge of doing that in the in the age in which we're living in now is... is uh, is huge. I mean, we uh, we almost exist in in uh, parallel universes, you know, with uh, social media and uh, everyone's got their sources of information and they're kind of living in their own little echo chambers. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how we kind of bridge that divide and uh, 
you know, reach people, have some real conversations about their perspective and our perspective. Um, I'm not sure, but um, yeah. So we, you know, we we can teach children what's right and what's wrong. It, it, it's it's wrong to be racist. Right. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it, it's wrong to treat people as an object. It's wrong to be uh, exclusive. It's right to be inclusive. I mean, there are certain um, universal rights and wrongs that, that we can we can stand for and, and uh, that we we, we can uh, proclaim, uh, which used used to just be uh, part of the message. Now it seems to be more prophetic because uh, there are so many that don't uh, embrace those values. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, be with us today. Well, thank you, Curtis. It's been a, a, a joy to, to be with you, to to, be, to write for the Christian Citizen, to be a part of uh, in this together. And uh, if I could just take a, a, a one one more second or so to say, uh, I, I've been a, a writer for for uh, more than fifty years, and uh, I've worked with uh, so many editors. And uh, I would rank you uh, number one in terms of uh, thoughtfulness as an editor. Uh, you you always acknowledge articles. No, that's new. <laughs> editors never. I. You know, after months, I would have to write back and say, did you get the article? You know, you let me know right away. You let me know when it's coming out. Uh, I think there's a lot of ways that you're a great editor. But uh, uh, for the most part, as an editor, you are a writer's dream. So thank you uh, for doing so well what you do. Well, thank you. I appreciate hearing that and uh, appreciate having you uh, contribute regularly and uh, continue to write for the publication. Thank you, Curtis. So In This Together, uh, Ministry in Times of Crisis um, is available from Amazon, Judson Press, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, uh, in print and ebook formats. And uh, John's latest article, Recognizing and Practicing the Things that Make for Peace, can be found at christiancitizen.us. While there, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive weekly notification of new stories, as well as links to this podcast and to articles of interest from other publications. Thank you for being with us today. At The Christian Citizen, we're passionate about justice, mercy, and faith. We produce award-winning content that is provocative, timely, and relevant. What started 25 years ago as a print publication is now a digital-first, multi-platform publication. We've added an award-winning weekly e-newsletter, this podcast, and a growing presence on social media. Now, for the first time, we're adding a member support program, Christian Citizen Ambassadors. Learn more about how you can support our work at christiancitizen.us slash members. Thank you to this week's guest, the Reverend John Zuring. Our theme music is Eye of the Beholder by Fabian Tell. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show, website, and newsletter are produced by myself, Joshua Kagi. Stories are copyrighted by Hannah Estefanos. Our art director is Danny Ellison. The Christian Citizen editorial board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagre, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett, and the Reverend Cassandra Karkoff Williams. And our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, the Reverend Kimberly Payton Jones, the Reverend Stephen D. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McMiggle, and the Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about the Christian Citizen, visit our website, ChristianCitizen.us. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Thanks for listening.